clients with intellectual property need to be careful. And I think that as a law firm who represents a number of clients, we take this very seriously and we realize that there's a big target painted on our chest. Welcome to IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield. Our topic for this episode is cybersecurity. Matt Berg has been at the helm of Wolf Greenfield's information technology initiative since joining the firm in 2001. As Chief Information Officer, Matt is responsible for strategic technology planning and execution. At the top of that priority list is cybersecurity. Matt, thanks for joining us. When it comes to client-specific security, can you describe the different approaches for dealing with prospects interested in possibly retaining Wolf Greenfield as opposed to those that are already existing clients? Clients are under the same pressure we are, and they're trusting us with data that's often at the core of their business. So for a prospective client, that means they want to just have a sense of whether you treat information security seriously. Usually, they're not digging in as deeply as clients who are, say, in the you know defense industry or in these particular areas of technology where they really want to be super careful. For me, with prospective clients, my favorites are when they want to see whether we are already compliant or we are already certified in something. They don't always care really per se what it is. For us, we're ISO 27001 certified. So sometimes all I really have to do for a prospective client is provide the certificate that shows that we have ISO certification and that's enough. Sometimes they ask us to fill out a light kind of, a, of an audit of a survey, if you will. My favorites of those are the SIGs. They call them SIG lights, which is a standardized information gathering questionnaire. I particularly like those because I'm familiar with them on our end because we ask vendors to complete those if we have any vendors where we're sharing data with them. But those are kind of a standardized information gathering document so that you kind of know what kind of questions to expect. And it's a predictable experience. And it's also a best practice document. A lot of people have spent a lot of time honing it down to this set of questions so you can be sure that it it covers the basis. Then there's the existing clients. I mentioned, uh, you know, defense industry clients, and that's where it can be pretty, it can be pretty intensive. We've had clients subject us to multi-day audits that rival anything we went through for our own ISO certification. I'm talking about having uh, online interviews to affirm my identity where I'm holding my license up to the camera. Talk about clients requiring us to buy hardware tokens to do our two-factor authentication, to access a secure portal where I'm doing this security assessment. And the sensitivity of the data that, that you're sharing when you're filling out a security assessment is usually not terribly sensitive, right? You're answering questions and saying, yes, we meet baseline levels of security. But in some of these defense industry sponsored ones, it can get pretty sensitive. The things that you're revealing when you're when you're answering these surveys so you can understand why they'd want to protect it like that. Matt, I'm sure there are many, but can you describe some of the targets that you need to protect? The most obvious targets for our clients are their actual IP. It's bad actors out in the world are trying to get a jump on some kind of innovation in a particular field of technology or medicine or business. There's a lot of places in our clients' data that are especially sensitive. And so, especially before applications have been granted in pre-publication state, these applications are particularly vulnerable. That's the opportunity where 
one business might try and get a jump on another. There's also inside information factor. There's taking information that you might be able to obtain and using it to make trades or influence a business deal. At its extreme, when organized crime might be involved, there's an opportunity for blackmail or extortion. And, and it may sound like I'm talking about a TV show, but this is real stuff. And when I do my security awareness presentations, I cite articles where these giant mega billion dollar deals in Canada are determined to be compromised because somebody got inside information um, from a security breach. So this is not fiction. This is all real stuff. These are all real risks for our clients. How has the cybersecurity threat landscape changed in your 20 years at Wolf Greenfield? As you say, I've been at Wolf for 20 years. I've been in IT for probably another 10 years beyond that in one role or another. And um, I think back to when I first came to Wolf 20 years ago what the threats were and what the threat landscape was back then. And it's almost cute, right? It, it was mischief. There were a lot of viruses that were going around back then 20 years ago. I think of the Ethan Frome virus. You know, I was an English major in grad school and I, I remember Ethan Frome. I remember having to read that book. And then when the virus came out, I said, this is, this is something. This is some intellectual person who's got some agenda, who's got this virus. And it didn't do much. It renamed files. It inserted text into your Word documents. You know, it was mischief. It doesn't mean it didn't cause IT problems and it didn't cause the business problems, but it, it just it just wasn't at the same level of threat that we're dealing with today. Organized crime syndicates are making serious money. It is a business. And, and everybody's heard the term the dark web. But the dark web's not some special internet. It's you through accessing certain sites on the internet can get malware yourself. You can download viruses yourself and you can implement them yourself. And you can then take the data that you get from those malware applications that you've downloaded and you can leverage that for blackmail, extortion. Ransomware is obviously the biggest in the news you can download ransomware and, and launch it against a target now. And, and, and so it's a big deal. And I think, again, swinging back to the fact that we're talking about an intellectual property firm here, this is an opportunity for a nation state, for example, to jump the line and, and advance their own technology initiatives that they may have from a national perspective or team up with kind of more of an organized crime type of an angle on, on using malware to get financial advantages over other nation states or just to fund the, fund the government pockets in, in their own right. So it's a big deal. And I think that clients with intellectual property need to be careful. And I think that as a law firm who represents a number of clients, we take this very seriously. And we realize that there's a big target painted on our chest. How does Wolf Greenfield handle security when it comes to third parties? For third parties, there's a couple things we do. On the one hand, we have written policies, what we call administrative controls. So we have written policies in place that we require when we're engaging in business with a new vendor, for example. Let's say it's a litigation vendor who's going who's gonna to host our e-discovery data for a, we're defending one of our client's patents against a lawsuit or something like that. So there's an e-discovery component. We want to engage a new 
online vendor and we're going to give them a lot of a lot of data and a lot of that data is very sensitive so we have written policies around that and we require that those vendors go through a fairly rigorous vetting process to assure that they are going to handle this data the way we would the next step is as part of our engagement letter we actually include an addendum that says t- with the vendor you will comply with our security measures or greater. The standards that you use in handling this data must meet or exceed the standards that we have set ourselves. And so we have that conversation with these vendors. And then the final thing is, is when we have been unable to determine easily, for example, if they have a SOC 2 certification or they are themselves ISO 27001 certified or NIST certified or something along those lines, then there's there's an opportunity for us to kind of keep the conversation short about their security practices. But if they don't have a good story there, then we run them through a third-party risk management company who specializes in helping you audit the security of vendors that you want to work with. So we started that about a year and a half ago, and it's going really well. And it, and it helps because it standardizes the experience. It puts the effort of evaluating the security of our vendors in the hands of a company who does it on a daily basis, and they've become very good at it. They know what to look for and very experienced at it. Matt, are there instances when you have to create partitions between attorneys that might be involved with clients that have potentially competing or conflicting interests with other Wolf clients? Absolutely. What you're referring to is most obviously and typically referred to as ethical walls. We'll have situations internally where There could be a potential conflict between a case that one attorney wants to work on and another attorney wants to work on. As much as possible at the client level, we try to eliminate potential conflicts so that we don't encounter these issues at the level of a given case. But with some of our larger clients, especially in the technology and biotech space, there's a lot of opportunity out there for these large companies to do work that is competitive, that is um, close enough to the work that these other companies are doing, that there's these potential client conflict moments on a case-by-case basis. So Ethical walls are very important. You want to implement those in a way that keeps honest people honest, right? It keeps attorneys who shouldn't have access to a given set of data about a case that could be a conflict of interest. You keep them honest by not giving them access to that. I also think that this is an opportunity for me as an IT guy to mention that there's this security practice called least privilege that is at the heart of everything we do really from a permission perspective on the IT side of the house. Whether it's files that are out on your on your file system or whether it's data in your database or documents in your document management system, I think that where we can, we try to implement permissions that give people the least amount of privilege that they need to do their job. And that might sound ungenerous or something, but what it does for you is is it it creates a an environment where say somebody who only has a little bit of permission because maybe they're junior or they haven't been at the work very long. Let's say they click on a link in an email that they shouldn't have and they download cryptoware on their computer. Well, if we've only granted them access to a limited set of data in our system, then there's only so much data that can be affected by their actions. So 
say cryptoware launched by someone like that would have minimal impact on our network and our environment. So that's a really big thing in IT is the concept of least privilege. And I just want to bring it up in that context. IT professionals can apply all kinds of layers of security from perimeter to within the applications and on and on it goes, but employees still must act accordingly. Can you explain the human factor as it pertains to cybersecurity? That's a great question because, you know, no matter what we do, uh, you, you mentioned perimeter security and, and, you know, I think that historically IT security at, at uh, corporations and law firms was let's build firewalls, let's build these kind of umbrellaed layers around our, our environment, around our network, and let's protect it. And the concept of a LAN, of a local area network has, has kind of evaporated as people move data up into the cloud, applications into the cloud, collaboration experiences. It's hard to know without good systems in place where all your data is at all time. And that, that's a big deal for law firms. So we need to know where, where our data is at any given point in time. And we need to have intelligence around what's happening inside those walls. And the walls have blurred out to the cloud, but we still need to know what's going on kind of inside our application environment, if you will. So there's two big things, right? There is some technology that you can use. So we use internal monitoring. It's not just a firewall or a, or a web proxy anymore. Now there's what they call east-west monitoring internal to your application environment or your network, where you see this machine on your network is talking to this server in the cloud, and this is unusual activity. We're seeing that they're uploading a, a larger amount of data than they normally do, or they're uploading a large amount of data at an unusual time. You know, it's a, it's a Saturday night at 11 p.m., and they're not in litigation. This is an unusual activity that we're seeing. And so we have systems, we have a couple of different systems in place now that look for that kind of activity and flag it when the algorithms don't look quite right. But to come back, you said the human factor, right? That is the single greatest vulnerability. We can do all kinds of things from a technology perspective. We can take away your administrative rights on your computer. We can restrict your ability to install programs on your computer. We can, as I said earlier, use least privilege to limit access to network files. But at some point, in order for these people to do their jobs, they need a baseline of permissions to do their job. So everybody has to have at least sufficient permission to click on some links, right? To do some things, to download some files, to open documents. It's part of all of our lives that these attachments are just everywhere and you can just get to them so easily on your mobile device, etc. So again, it's basically impossible to build an environment where your users can actually get work done, where they can't also get themselves in trouble. So we do security awareness training. Everybody needs to be doing that. I, I think it's pretty accepted as a baseline now for corporations and law firms that you have to do ongoing, routine, annual, ongoing security awareness training. And not only that, you need to do penetration testing, you need to do social engineering testing, human factors engineering testing, whether that's a phishing campaign, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, everybody's heard that word by now, where you're sending out emails that we sent out some emails that look suspicious in the hopes that our users will spot the fact that they're being asked to open an attachment or click on a link that they maybe should question. And then if our users click on that link, oh, 
they get remedial security awareness training or it's, it sounds funny, um, but it's obviously very serious. But I think that doing it this way really drives it home to the users and, and doing it regularly is really important. So we've even done penetration testing where we hire people to call and, the, and they will call people on the phone and they will say, hi, this is, this is Matt from the help desk. I need your password. And if our users have been paying attention in security awareness classes, they know IT will never ask you for their password. You know, they're just not going to ask you for your password. If they, for some reason, need to log in as you, they can change your password to something they know, log in as you, and then tell you later or whatever, you're going to need to change your password because I had to change it to do the thing that I needed to do. What I always tell people is, is if IT has to change your password to log in as you, that's audited, right? That's tr that's tracked in the logs. We know we did it. If something bad happens with your account, data is leaked. Well, shortly after IT changed your password, then you know we're not going to come looking to you. We're going to look at IT who just changed your password. I think it just stresses the fact that our users are regularly subjected to opportunities to be tested and to learn and to be reminded about the threats that are out there because we can't take away their ability to do their job. So at some level, we have to trust them to make the right decisions. Finally, Matt, do all these concerns about cyber threats keep you up at night worrying about what might be next? Um, I don't really think it does. You know, for me, fortunately, Wolf takes this stuff seriously and they listen to their IT department when the IT department tells them what we should be doing from a best practices perspective. I wouldn't say we were ever bleeding edge with our security practices, but we always kept up. That's testament to the shareholders here, to the lawyers here, to taking this stuff seriously. As the threats developed and matured and became more serious, at the same time, we were following along by implementing new technologies, implementing new practices and policies and, and all that. So as a new threat comes out, yes, I get a shiver down my spine and I think, what can I do to address that threat? But because the firm is very open to making sure that we protect our clients' data, I mean, honestly, it's our clients' lifeblood and our, it's the core of our clients' business. And it's therefore, as an IP law firm, it's the core of our business too, that our clients feel that their data is safe. So all along, we've tried to keep up with the security ramifications of the latest threats. So yeah, I don't lose a lot of sleep at night. You never know what the next threat's going to be, but I know that when I'm reading the news and looking at my tech newsletters and whatnot about the latest threats as they come out, I do feel that we're in a good position to handle those because the firm takes this very seriously. Our thanks to Matt Berg for sharing his thoughts with us on IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield. We hope you'll subscribe to our series of conversations related to IP matters, whether on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you might get your podcasts. For more information on legal matters related to intellectual property, we invite you to visit our website, www.wolfgreenfield.com. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield.